But in any case, number one, the Mosaic law uh, is a portion of God's word. And for that reason, if that was the only reason, that would be enough reason for us to uh, pay attention to it. We also have to remember that the Mosaic law is a large portion of God's word. When you consider that it begins around Exodus 20 or so and to the end of Deuteronomy. And even though we've got some historical elements in the book of Exodus and in the book of Numbers, nonetheless, uh, the law is a large portion of God's word. So uh, it's something that we should understand and devote ourselves to. There's a lot of weirdness if I use that expression, in the Mosaic Law too. There are things that we would look at and say, what is that about? And some of the specifics in the Mosaic Law, I'm not sure, are fully comprehensible today. I say that because much of it has to do with the ancient world and how things were done in the ancient world. We're not exactly sure uh, how that came into fruition. But nevertheless... Uh, we still need to look at God's law because of its significance as God's word. We want to study the law of God because many are not sure how the law is to be related to them. What kind of relevance does the law have to us? Are we bound by the law? Uh, When the commandment says that we are to honor the Sabbath day, are we bound to be worshiping on Saturday? Is 90, I don't know, I'm just going to say 95% of quote-unquote Christendom in error because they worship on Sunday? Right. Yeah, in fact, what the writer to the Hebrews goes on to say is that the, the one had to come to an end so that the Messiah could be the priesthood be the priest that the prophet said that he would be because his priesthood is after Melchizedek, not after Aaron. So in order for him to be a priest, the Aaronic priesthood has to end. And in order for the, uh, that's the writer to the Hebrews point, and in order for the Aaronic priesthood to end, the law must end because it is part, the, right, and it must, it's part of the law. And so it comes back to if any of the law is active, uh, then it it uh, violates not the word, but it restrains Messiah from fulfilling his his ministry, according to the writer to the Hebrews. Okay, so let's uh, or his priesthood ministry as our great high priest, like, but you can't divide the law. That's the po- that's the point I was trying to make is that the law is one entity. When any one part ceases, its entirety then must cease, or no part of it can cease. Because the laws are not in parts. But it does, because James points out, if we fail to keep any one part of the law, we're guilty of it all. So his point is the law is a singular entity, We break it into parts to talk about. So the writer to the Hebrews is talking about a part of the law to talk about to show that its entirety must end. Because no one part can end unless its entirety ends. You can't. You can't just end the Ten Commandments without ending the ceremonial. can't end the ceremonial without ending the others. You can't end the priesthood without all of it being ended because it's all part of the same. It's one entity. It's one entity, but Yeshua, he shall not kill. 
No, no, but let's not, let's, uh, I just want you to take this a step at a time because this is complicated things. So if we, if we understand the law as one entity, in order for any one part of it to cease, it all must cease. Now you're asking, why is that so? We'll get, we'll see why, but that's the, that's the writer to the Hebrews point. And it makes sense if it's an entity. Okay, so now let's just talk about why the law, the Mosaic law given at Mount Sinai is important. Why is the law important to us? What are some reasons why you think it might be important? Yeah, the scripture makes a distinction between sins and transgressions. So Adam and Eve sinned, but they didn't transgress. Because unless there's a law, there's no transgression. There's rebellion and there's sin. But once the law is given, now there's not only sin and rebellion, but there's transgression. And that's Paul's point in the book of Romans. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. He doesn't say there's no sin. He says there's no, no transgression because no standard has been established as an entity by which a given nation was expected to live by. Okay, tells us much about the Lord who gave it. Okay, so here's some of my thoughts. Uh, See if some of uh, that came on the table here are similar. One, I said it was a corrective for apostasy. Remember, the law was given to the Jewish people when they came out of Egypt. And in Egypt, they fell prey to a great deal of apostasy as exhibited by the idolatry of the Egyptians. We know that because at Mount Sinai, when Moses goes up and he comes back, what are they doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. Where'd they get that idea from? Well, it's part and parcel of what they experienced in Egypt. So it was a corrective for apostasy. We talk about obedience or living rightly, but it was to keep us from falling, or keeping the Jewish people particularly, from uh, falling from... Uh, faithfulness before the Lord and falling into idolatrous ways and worshiping wrong gods. I mean, the very first commandment, I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, that's the whole point. It's, it's a corrective for apostasy. Don't fall prey to these, these other gods. It was uh, the means by which Israel is made into a nation. I mean, up until this point, Exodus... Up until the Exodus, Israel is a family of tribes. They're not called a nation yet, to, or they're not in actuality a nation yet, until they enter into a national covenantal identity, which occurs at Sinai. The giving of the law is a covenantal relationship with God. It's not just giving of commandments. There's a covenantal bond that becomes established. And Israel now is made into a nation which she was not before. Before she was the Hebrews, was a Hebrew slave. Those that were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the 12 tribes. But now they're going to become a nation that's going to displace other nations in the promised land. The law was a mechanism by which they were galvanized into a nation. They now had a central place of worship, the tabernacle, later to be the temple. They now had the 12 tribes that would settle in various territories in the land that they would inherit. 
They now had interconnection and relationships one to the other. So they weren't individual tribes. Now they were a nation made up of these distinctive tribes. Deuteronomy, this is really kind of cool. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you may like to turn to some of these passages. But at, uh, Moses tells us that the law would make Israel noted among the nations. Why is it important? It separated Israel from the rest of the nations and made her famous. Moses says that when they saw, when the nations would see Israel obeying the law, living out the law, they would become jealous of what they had because their God, he says, was so near them that they could pray to him and he would answer their prayers. Not like the gods of the nations that they had to hope that they were listening and would do something in their behalf. And if they didn't do enough, cut themselves enough, give of their firstborn enough, they may never have any help from them at all. But not the, Israel, not the Jewish people's God. All they had to do was talk to him. And he was right there with them, ready to uh, assist them in any way. So why is the law important? It, corre- it was a corrective for apostasy. Apostasy has something to do with obedience, as you were saying. It wielded Israel into a nation. It made her famous uh, before God, uh, noted to stand out. And those were important aspects to the law. Some of the things you said we're going to talk about as well. Okay, we're about 10 of. So let's see if we can... Um, jump into this because now we start getting a a little bit more theologically oriented because we now are talking about uh, what what is the relationship of the law of God to the grace of God in many churches this is seen as a contrast that law and grace are antagonistic to one another I don't think that's the real picture in the scripture And I'll show you why. First of all, the law was a manifestation of God's grace to Israel. How so? Well, Israel didn't receive the law by merit. Scripture is very clear. She did not deserve the law. It was a gift from God. And that's why I said at the MJAA, I think it was at the MJAA, I said so often Israel is made to be, excuse my French, made to to be damned if they do, damned if they don't. I've heard this over and over again in many churches. Some pastors would get up there and say that um, the law was given to the Jewish people, they receive it, and they don't obey it. What's wrong with those people that they, that they would take the law that uh, was given to them knowing that they could not uh, obey it? So they should have refused it. And and said to God, hey, we can't obey this. We need your grace, not your law. And so they're damned if they don't. I've heard others say that, um, that when they said, yes, we'll do your law and receive it. They said, who do they think they were that they could do the law? All that you say we will do is that they're so prideful and arrogant that they could obey the law. So now they're damned if they do. You know, so what were they supposed to do at Mount Sinai? Were they supposed to say, hey, listen, thanks, but no thanks? Or were they supposed to receive it? You know, the point is they were given it as a gift 
to Israel. He brought them to Mount Sinai. He brought Moses up to the top. He told them not to come close to the mount. He had Joshua near, you know, somewhat up the mountain, but not as high as as uh, Moses went up. It was given with thunder and lightning and smoke. It was a manifestation of the glory of God and the grace of God as he gives to them his law, which as Barry said, among many things, reveals his character. So we need to remember that the giving of the law was an act of God's grace to the people. As all things that come from God, according to James, uh, are gifts from God. Isn't that how he puts it? Uh, I forget the, I'm not quoting exactly. What does he say? Yeah, from the Father of lights and so on. So it's important that we recognize this. Uh, well, I'm saying grace is a manifestation of God's... Uh, excuse me. The law is a manifestation of God's grace as a gift. Absolutely. He came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law in all of its parts. We're going to talk about that as we get into some of these Brit Hadashah comments. So, I, but what I want us to see is... Um, I just want us to get a fuller, broader picture, more balanced picture of the law. We're saying a lot of things here, and we have to keep it all sort of floating together. The law is a gift from God, and therefore a manifestation um, of His grace. And and Deuteronomy 8.18 says this, that the law was a gift from God, because Israel did not merit it, nor did she deserve it. And this is another thing we have to remember about the uh, grace, that the law, according to Genesis and Galatians, the law did not annul any of the features of the Abrahamic covenant. It was added alongside of it, but it does not annul it. Now, we're going to talk more about this, but the Abrahamic covenant is the principal covenant with the people of Israel. Because from the Abrahamic covenant, you have three major components, three major aspects to it. The promise of land, the promise of a descendant, and the promise of blessing. The Abrahamic covenant has once was described to me as sort of like an umbrella. And under the umbrella, you have these three components. The promise of a descendant, seed, a promise of of land and a promise of blessing. So the Abrahamic covenant is the basis for these three critical promises. Now, each one of these promises, God makes a covenant with Israel. So one of the principles of the Abrahamic covenant, he said, is I'm going to give you this land, correct? Genesis 15, the border on the north is the what? The border is the Euphrates, Euphrates River. The border on the east is the Jordan River. Border on the south is the Wadi El Arish or the, uh, it's that Wadi that flows near Kadesh Barnea. And then on the west, it's the Mediterranean Sea. Tells Abraham, every place your foot walks on, I'm giving this to you and your descendants. Now, it wasn't limited to every place his foot walked on, because he didn't walk on it all. In fact, by the end of Abraham's life, he only owns a cave, the cave of Machpelah. 
But God said, I'm giving this to you and to all your descendants. The promise of land to Abraham, God then will make another covenant called the land covenant found in Deuteronomy, what is it, 30 to 32. And in there, he promises specifically in enlarged detail the land of Israel as explained to Abraham and then later Isaac and Jacob. The second entity of of Abraham a covenant, you have the land, which he makes the land covenant, Deuteronomy 30 to 32, which reinforces what he said to Abraham. The second entity to the Abrahamic covenant was the promise of a descendant, a seed. Later, he'll make a covenant with David and he'll say one of his descendants will sit on his throne forever. That covenant is found, I'm going to say 2 Samuel 7, I think it's Second Chronicles or First Chronicles 17. I get those kind of mixed up, but it's when Nathan prom- is the voice of God and tells him to your seed, your descendant, I'm giving you the uh, dynasty and you'll never lack a uh, descendant to sit on the throne forever. So when Abraham is promised a seed, God reinforces that promise to Abraham with the Davidic promise of a descendant. And when God promises great blessing to Abraham, I'll make your name great. I will bless you. You'll be a blessing to the nations. He then in Jeremiah 31 makes what is known as the new covenant, which is the covenant of outpoured blessing on Israel. No longer uh, will any of you need to teach Uh, one another because you shall all know me from the least to the greatest. The law now, he says, that you could not obey will be engraved on your heart. And so now this promise of blessing to Abraham is reinforced by a separate covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant is the critical covenant for Israel. It's three components, land, seed, descendant, and blessing are reiterated by additional covenants unto themselves. Those four covenants are all unconditional covenants. Abraham doesn't have to do anything. God simply says, I'm doing this for you. It's an act of God's grace. And in Genesis 15, Abraham is asleep. And he takes the parts of the animal, puts them between him. And it's God that goes through the parts, binding himself to fulfill these promises to Abraham. Abraham doesn't do anything but receive them. And so those four covenants made with Israel are the critical covenants. The the Mosaic law is a fifth covenant made with Israel, but it's different than the Abrahamic. Notice Galatians tells us it was added. That's not the passage in Galatians. I think it's Galatians 3. But in that passage, it says it was added alongside the Abrahamic. It's over here. The other covenants were underneath it, as I said, like an umbrella. But the, the Mosaic was added alongside. It was in addition to, not a part of. It wasn't integral to the Abrahamic covenant. It was put alongside. It was distinct. The Abrahamic covenant and its Davidic covenant, new covenant, and land covenant are all unconditional. David doesn't have to do anything. His descendants are going to be the inheritors of his throne. But the Mosaic covenant, The Mosaic Law and Covenant is not unconditional. It is a conditional covenant. If you do this, you will live. If you don't do this, you will be judged and cast off the land. So the the Mosaic Law is a whole different animal than the Abrahamic Covenant. And it needs to be recognized as such. My point here is that the covenant of Abraham 
and all of its parts were not annulled by the Mosaic law. And that is an act of God's grace. Let me see if I can just finish this out and we'll call it a night. While I say that the law is a manifestation of God's grace, I don't want you to think that the law is not contrasted with God's grace in some places also. So, for example, in John chapter 1, it says, uh, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Messiah. That's a contrast. Now, what is the nature of that contrast? We will see. But it's a contrast. And the one that came by Moses is not as great as that which came by Messiah. The writer to the Hebrews makes that point over and over and over again. What comes by way of Messiah is superior to anything that preceded his coming, including the Mosaic law. He's greater than Moses, and therefore he's greater than what Moses conveys. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than all of these things. And this is something I think the Messianic movement is desperately in need of remembering. Because what happens is we elevate Jewish things, as much as I'm a Jew and love Jewish things, above the Jewish Messiah. I think there's a real problem, and I said this at the MJA meeting, there's a real problem when people would prefer to fellowship with unbelieving Jews because of a shared tradition rather than with believing Jews in churches where there's a shared Messiah. That's what I think. Now, you can disagree with me. I mean, you're free to. That's what's wonderful about America. But my point is, I want to be with my brothers and sisters who love the Lord, even if I have to worship in a foreign language. Rather than just be with my brothers and sisters who are not, do not share the Messiah with me and with whom I may share much of my background and my tradition. My tradition is important to me, but not as important as my Messiah. My brethren, according to the flesh, are important to me, but not as important as my brothers who know the Lord, both Jews and non-Jews. It's really important we get that straight because Messiah tells us we're his brethren. He is our elder brother. His father is our father in a way that he is not their father. In a way that he is not their father. Our God is everybody's God. Nobody has another God. There's only one God. He's the God of everyone. But we are fortunate to have been graced to be made children of God. We've been given authority, the right to become children of God. We can't claim it. It's given to us as a gift. And it is. it would be horrific on our part to then take that gift, which has made us a member of God's family, and say, I'm not going to fellowship with them because they're Gentiles, they're not Jewish, uh, Jewish enough, I'll go over here with Jewish people who don't know the Lord. I don't get that, to be honest. But listen, that's not my, for me to judge. But it's important, it's important to remember Messiah is superior to everything. Everything. He's the one we worship, and he's the one 
we are to serve. And that's the message that must come through the pulpit of Beth Ariel time and time. We'll do it with the candles. We'll do it with our festivals. But at the end of the day, it is Messiah and him alone. Just like the Greeks that came, we would see Messiah. That's what, that's what we need. So I'm just saying, as wonderful as the law is, it is contrasted with grace that comes through Messiah. Why? Because Messiah is the center of reality. He's the center of it all. And he's the one we need to praise. So let me give you two more passages. Romans 6.14 makes the same, the same point. All of this has to be factored into our understanding of the Mosaic law. But Paul writes, For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. When we look at Romans later, we're going to see that what Paul means when he says not under law, he means not under Mosaic law. He doesn't mean we're not under legal uh, uh, expectations. He is referring to the Mosaic law in Romans 6 and in Romans 7. And I'll show you why that is uh, when we get to it. We want, maybe we'll do that next week because uh, we're just out of time. And then Galatians 3.23 says, Galatians 3.23 says, uh, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Messiah. Those are heavy words coming from one who is a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. We were prisoners. That is not a delightful term. And it's much like what Peter says. Why should we impose, Acts 15, why should we impose this upon the Gentiles that neither we nor our, our forefathers could bear, he says. We were held in bondage. But the point I want to make in Galatians is until the faith was revealed. He's talking about faith in Messiah, which came to us by God's grace. The point is there's a contrast happening and we can't ignore that, uh, that truth as well. Okay, so now listen, it is now and I'm over time again, I'm sure. Okay. I'm about 10 minutes over. So I'm just going to close in prayer. And then those of you that need to go, please don't feel weird about that, um, you know, because I know it's a work day, but I'll stick around for a little bit and we can have some interaction. But I just don't want anyone to feel compelled to stay any longer than they can. Father, we thank you for this evening. We're grateful for your truths. We're grateful for your word. Help us to understand them and to uh, rightly apply them. So be with each and every one. I thank you for their coming this evening. It is a joy to see this room filled. And um, I thank you, Father, for their enthusiasm for you and for your word. I pray you give them a safe trip home. And as they uh, reflect on these matters, may you unfold its meaning and significance more and more. Make it clearer and clearer to all of us, uh, I pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Gary, Chuck Swindoll.